Haggai. Haggai, it's not Haggai. Don't insert an extra I. Sometimes uh, people disagree on whether we say Habakkuk or Habakkuk, Haggai or Haggai. It's Haggai. Uh, and this is the last of the Old Testament minor prophets that we will be studying together this summer. Uh, my plan, Lord willing, it could change, uh, but that we will spend three Sundays looking at these two chapters. Today, though, covering the whole first chapter of the prophet Haggai, another minor prophet, and that means a change again in time uh, and occasion for the prophet. We most recently studied Nahum together. Nahum prophesied against the foreign nation of Assyria around 650, 640 B.C., uh, and here in Haggai we find uh, a post-exilic prophet. We find God's word coming to the people who have now been brought back from captivity in Babylon or back in Jerusalem and have been sent to reestablish God's people in the promised land. And Haggai writes about uh, 130, 120 years after Nahum. And so today, Haggai, we're going to be reading and studying the first chapter, Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And before we read this word together, Let's go to the Lord again in prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. O gracious, righteous, and glorious Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you, by your spirit, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe, that you would give us the grace of knowing you through your word and seeing Jesus Christ, our Savior, and him glorified in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in the prophet Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while well, this house lies in ruins. Now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. 
and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I still uh, remember exactly where I was the moment I heard the news, and maybe you remember as well. I was uh, a senior in high school at the time, and morning classes were still underway. And at least at that point, schools in Pennsylvania still had industrial arts classes, so I was standing behind a metal lathe of all places uh, when someone came into the classroom and told us to turn on the television. There had been a terrible accident, they said. A commercial jet had crashed into one of the twin towers in New York City, and it was September 11th, 2001. For other generations, there may be other dates, other memories that are burned into your mind of where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news. There are many who still remember where they were when they learned that Kennedy had been shot in November of 1963 or when the Challenger exploded in January of 1986. Maybe you remember where you were when the Boston Marathon was filled with smoke and chaos on April of 2013. It's true that we probably remember the tragedies that we've experienced and the news of those things more readily than we remember the news of the blessings, but sometimes there are dates associated with those as well. Can you imagine the experience of of a slave born and raised on a plantation somewhere in Georgia, somewhere. The first time they heard the news of the Emancipation Proclamation. Can you imagine an American soldier serving and fighting in World War II somewhere across an ocean who receives a letter from home? It's taken weeks to get there telling him that his first child has been born, a healthy baby girl. Or maybe you remember where you were Maybe you remember who you were talking to the first time you heard the gospel in a way that made sense. The first time you heard it in a way that made it believable. Now for some of us, not all of us, there are dates associated with those things. There are concrete memories connected to the time that God showed up with his word and he made your soul feel alive, perhaps for the very first time. That seems to be what happened on August 29th in the year 520 B.C. The Babylonian astrological records are so accurate that we can pinpoint the moment to within a day. Haggai tells us that it was the second year of King Darius in the sixth month on the first day of the month. That means it was a new moon festival. The Holy Sabbath for the people of God, just before uh, the grape harvest and the pomegranate harvest were about to be gathered. 
We don't know for sure where the people were when they heard the news, when Haggai came with the word of the Lord. But we do know that before the exile, it was normal. It was a regular occurrence for the people of God to gather at his sanctuary around the altar on the first of the month for the new moon. We also know that the word of the Lord came to Haggai in a place that he could address the governor and the high priest and the people all at the same time. That means that we can't be certain. But we can at least say that it's not a stretch to imagine that the first time God's word came through a prophet in the promised land since the days of Jeremiah. It's not a stretch to imagine that when that happened, the people were assembled around God's altar. That they were standing right in front of the ruins of the temple that had been torched and demolished 66 years earlier. There are moments when God's word shows up. And you remember the day that everything changes. There are times when he sends his spirit. And he wakes up his people from their spiritual slumber. And that's what's happening in the prophet Haggai. And that means the first thing that we learn from this prophet is that our God is the God who who confronts our complacency. God is the God who confronts our complacency. This is the message of the first four verses. God's word shows up through the hand of his prophet, and we witness this conflict between he said and they said. Take a look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We have seen arguments like this before in the prophets. Arguments between God and his people, specifically earlier this summer when we were studying in Malachi, we heard the Lord speak to his people and tell them, I have loved you, says the Lord, and the people said, prove it. We've heard the Lord say to his people, return to me, and they said, in effect, we've never left. We've been right here all along. We've seen disagreements and arguments between God and his people, although in Malachi it it sounded like it was different. There the issue seemed to be that God's people were recalcitrant. They were adversarial. They were directly contradicting what God had been telling them. Here in Haggai, the spiritual disease seems to be more subtle. It's not an issue of recalcitrance, but of complacency. Now, the book of Ezra gives us the historical background for this disagreement. You can read there, and in fact, I encourage you sometime this week, as we're going to be going through Haggai, go back and read Ezra, because the first three to five chapters really encapsulate what Haggai has been sent to do and what's going on in the land, and that's going to be important further reading for you as we go through Haggai in the next several weeks. But the book of Ezra gives us the background here. Ezra chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 3. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, the Lord has already spoken. 
He spoke to the mouth of Jeremiah, his prophet. He spoke again to this pagan king, Cyrus. He sent his people back from captivity like resurrected saints back to the land of the living, and he sent them back with a job to do, to rebuild the temple, the dwelling place of God Almighty among all the peoples of the earth, the place that he has chosen to set his name among humanity. He sent them back to build the temple. All that with Cyrus happened in the year 538. And the first wave of of resettlers came back to the land just two years later. And when they came back, they made a good start. The first thing they did was to rebuild the altar of the Lord, to reinstitute the worship of the living God there in Jerusalem. And then they also made a start on the temple. They made their free will offerings. They imported large timbers from foreign countries to begin the work. They began the work of resetting the foundation. But you know how big projects go. There's always more enthusiasm before the work actually gets started than there is once the bricks are being laid. And by Haggai's time, all of that, the, the people coming back and making a start on all these things, all that was about 16 years ago. It was 16 years of trying to balance, working on the temple as God had called them and and getting their crops in the ground and putting roofs over their heads and attending to daily necessities. It was 16 years of struggle and hardship. While they were away in Babylon, the fields became overgrown, so they returned to a promised land that looked like a wilderness. And they had to fight and subdue the land all over again with sweat and calluses. Ezra tells us further, it was 16 years of opposition from the people who lived in the land, the enemies of the people of God. And you know how it goes. Things were harder than the people expected. And this initial zeal for God's project wore off. Maybe they even got used to gathering once or three times a year for worship with this pile of rubble in the background. And then came the rationalizations. Then came the excuses. Or maybe it's not time yet to rebuild the temple. Maybe we should get our economy settled first. Maybe we should get our crops in the ground or another time of the year. Maybe we should get our crops in our storehouses. Maybe... Uh, Tomorrow would be a good time to begin this work. Maybe next week, maybe next year, maybe sometime. And it was complacency. I think sometimes we might like to tell ourselves that, you know, a loving God, uh, he's patient with those things, and, and he's so loving and he's so patient that what he should have done maybe is just to let it slide. They'll get their act together eventually, won't they? Leave them alone, and they will come home wagging their tails behind them, right? We want a little Bo Peep God who sort of leaves us to our own devices, to come to our own senses, to eventually say, oh, yes, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is where he has called me. But the Lord actually is far too loving to leave our complacency unchallenged. And so that's what he does in verse 4. The Lord challenges his people. The word of the Lord came again, and he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins. This is God's gotcha moment. The people said, well, it's not the right time. We just 
need a little longer. We're just going to wait a bit more. I had to get things in order first, but but this statement, verse 4, reveals just how hollow that excuse was. It's not that they were merely waiting to serve the Lord. It's that they didn't want to in the first place. They had better things to spend their time on. They had more important things to pursue. Now wasn't the right time to rebuild the temple because right now the people were busy, actually, and what they were busy with was pursuing their own pleasure and comfort. Now, in every other place uh, that this language of paneling shows up in the Old Testament, it is a word that speaks of opulence. It speaks of luxury. So we find that King Solomon, in all of his grandeur, Uh, paneled his home, his palace, with expensive woodwork. 1 Kings 7 says his throne room was finished or paneled with cedar from floor to rafters. And again, you know how it goes. Alec Matir says that yesterday's luxury is today's necessity. There is a sort of trickle-down effect in our standards of living and what we think is acceptable and what we think is needed. And so we compare ourselves to everybody who's around us. We imagine that our lives, quite frankly, deserve to be filled with all the comforts that we see everybody else enjoying. And pretty soon, if we're not careful, what we're doing is we're devoting our time and our thoughts and our energy and our deepest, most heartfelt desires to merely keeping up with all those other Joneses that we can find around us. It seems to be that this is the pursuit that God's people are engaged in. The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of stuff. The search for the good life. The never-ending effort to live just as well as we think that everybody else is living but us. And that pursuit always comes with choices. In fact, that's the tricky thing about complacency. We like to tell ourselves that when we say not yet, what we mean is soon. Not yet, but soon. In fact, as soon as I can get to it, I'll do that next thing. Not yet, but soon. We tell ourselves that it's a statement of good intention. And we tell ourselves that a good intention is a good place to start. But not yet is not a statement of intention. Not yet is a statement of choice. Very often when we say not yet, What we mean is no, yes. We mean no, and we mean yes at the same time. Think about it. Have you ever told yourself on a Thursday, I will start my diet on Monday? Not yet. Soon, though, I have very good intentions. Soon, I will do this. But what you're saying is no, and yes, no, I do not want to control my portion size. Yes, I would like to have some more ice cream. I'll start on Monday. And so complacency isn't just about our intentions for tomorrow. It's about the choices that we're making today. It's about what we are pursuing. It's about what we value. So in Haggai's day, the people are faced with a choice. Here they are, back in the promised land, with all of the implications of what Canaan meant for this covenant people. The promised land, of course, came with promises. It came with God's word for for blessing and for abundance. It came with God's commitment to be the Lord who dwelled among his people. It came with all these expectations of independence and safety and freedom. 
you know, the presence of God's remnant in the land also came with a calling. It came with a job to be done. And when the people were making their excuses, when they said, you know, we'll serve the Lord when the time is right, what they were really saying was yes and no. Yes, we want God to keep giving us good things. No, I don't really want to give myself to God. They were saying, yes, I want the Lord to bless me, but no, I don't want him to demand my obedience. And God in his goodness shows up to confront their complacency. He regularly does this for his people. It's one of the blessings of being his own. The Lord confronted his people in the days of Joshua, and he said, choose this day whom you will serve. No more fence-sitting, Joshua was saying. No more yes and no at the same time. Elijah said the same thing. He showed up and said, how long are you going to go on limping? Between two options, if God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Make a choice already. No more yes and no. Jesus told a rich young ruler that he had to love the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. Then Jesus tells us that if we're going to be his disciples, we need to make the choice to take up our cross and follow him daily. God is always confronting the complacency of his people, and it's a blessed thing that he does that, and maybe he's doing that for you right now. Maybe he's been doing it already before you stepped into this worship service, and you've been pushing against it. Sure, this, this word is the kind of thing that we need to apply to our cultural bent, maybe our personal bent toward materialism. God's word actually has something to say about how we spend our time and our money and our resources. And if we miss that, what the Lord is saying here about this constant pursuit of opulence and luxury, if we miss that, we will have missed one of the major points of this passage. But actually, it goes a bit deeper than this and a bit further than this. God's word has something to say about how we spend our resources, but it has much more to do with than just how many square feet we have and whether we have marble countertops or formica. Truth be told, the Lord is, is regularly calling us to simple obedience in many of the ways that he has revealed his will. And one of the ways that we dodge that call to obedience is by telling ourselves that we're not saying no to God so much as we're saying not yet. When the time is right, maybe later. It happens in lots of subtle ways. It happens for husbands, for fathers who know that they ought to be leading their families in prayer and private worship. They feel convicted from time to time, and that spiritual habit always feels like a good thing to start, so we'll start tomorrow. It happens for wives, who know that they need to let go of that grudge that they have been holding against their husbands for probably far too long, and they feel convicted about it, and they think, maybe we'll finally forgive this thing, but if I do, what lever will I pull the next time? So I'll hold on for just a while longer. Eventually, we'll, we'll release that thing. It happens for singles who know that they need to seek out a more mature Christian friend to disciple them, but that's something that can happen later. It happens for teenagers 
You get the sense that by now they probably ought to be taking their faith a bit more seriously. By now they ought to be uh, convinced that they are to say no to many of the pressures of the world. But there will be time for that, won't there? It happens for skeptics. And they insist on having all of their questions about God answered before they can trust him. Later. Not yet. Now's not the time. Soon, soon we tell ourselves. What are the areas where God has said now and you have said not yet? What are the spiritual duties that you meet with complacency rather than obedience? What we find in, in Haggai is that God is a loving God who loves us enough to confront those things, to speak to us in the midst of our complacency. He will not allow us to ignore where he is calling us. So we find that God is the God who confronts our complacency secondly. God is the God who reorders our priorities. He reorders our priorities. Now, in the main section of, of Haggai's sermon, you'll notice that the Lord calls his people to see things as they really are and then to pursue things as they really should be. You notice the parallel statement that's repeated word for word between verse 5 and verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, literally, the Lord says, set your heart to your ways. He's calling them to do a bit of uh, personal soul searching, a, a little bit of deep thinking and meditation on, on what's been going on and, and what's happening in their lives. And since this word way really means a road or a path, he's calling them not just to consider what they've been doing, but where they're headed. What is the general direction of of their approach to the Lord? Where will they be if they keep going down the same path that they're currently going? So he says, consider your ways. But you notice also that even though this command to consider is identical in verses 5 to 7, uh, it is followed in each instance by something that is very different. Verses 6 and 8 are vastly different, and that's because the Lord is providing for his people an alternative, uh, an intentional alternative. So verse 6, God is calling them to consider their current situation. Where are your lives headed now, he says. Verse 6, take a look. He says, you've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, some commentators have used this verse as a reason for arguing that earlier, when Haggai was talking about paneling, he couldn't possibly have been talking about the pursuit of luxury. In fact, if you have the King James, some of you may, it uses this word we don't use anymore. It says sealed with a C-E-I, like a ceiling. This is, no, 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 Haggai's talking about people with roofs over their heads. This isn't opulence, this is necessity. After all, now who cares about these opulent home DIY projects when there's no food and there's no drink and there are no clothes to wear? Actually, the passage doesn't say that there's no food or there's no drink. It simply says there's no satisfaction in those things. You see what it says? In fact, the way that the Hebrew reads, these verses are the perfect explanation of our contemporary culture. These verbs show up in a continuous force. It is an ongoing thing. So when it comes to eating and drinking and putting on those clothes, all those things describe an ongoing action. It's not that the food is gone, but it's that they keep eating and eating, and they never have their fill. It's not that they've run out of wine, but they keep drinking and they keep drinking and they never have all that they want. 
doesn't that sound like where we find ourselves? We keep running after contentment and all these outward things. We seek for satisfaction in our experiences and in our possessions and in our status and in our achievements. And we lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves that when we get to the next big stage, we'll have everything we always wanted. Everything will be settled. Then we'll be content. But the next big thing never comes. And when it does, there's no satisfaction. James chapter 4 says, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's what's happening in Jerusalem in 520 B.C. The people keep seeking satisfaction and they're finding only frustration instead. Sure, they have some food, and sure, they have some wine, and sure, they even have jobs to be worked and and wages to be earned, but it seems like as soon as they cash that paycheck, it's gone. It just evaporates somehow, somewhere. And they have plenty of seed to sow, and they have clothes to wear, but somehow the outcome they expect from all of those things never takes hold. There's this fog of futility over everything that they give themselves to. They're always reaching for the good life, and yet they're never quite able to grab hold of it. In verses 5 and 6, it's as if the Lord is challenging his people. He's asking them to consider, how is this pursuit of worldly happiness and worldly satisfaction, how's it working out for you? How are things going with where you are? You spend all your time and your energy focused on accumulating material things that everybody needs, but those material things just disappear. And what will you be left with if you can't find the happiness you thought you ought to pursue in this life? So he calls them to consider their situation. Verse 8, the calling is different. He calls them instead to consider God's solution. Verses 7 and 8, consider your ways, says the Lord. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Think about it, he says. How could life be different if you responded to him with obedience? What would be the outcome if you pursued God's glory rather than your comfort? What would be the takeaway if you made God's priorities your priorities? Of course, the cynics and and the pragmatists reading Haggai might say that, well, if we did that, the takeaway is exactly nil. Nothing. What is the Lord calling them to? He says, you go up, you cut the wood, you do the work, you build the house, I'll take pleasure and I'll get the glory. The pragmatists say, that's a pretty raw deal. You don't get anything, actually. God gets everything. You're doing all the work. He's taking all the glory. And if you're only in it for what you can get, it might just seem like a raw deal. But let me tell you that if it seems like a raw deal to you, friends, you have no idea what love is all about. Imagine that you're invited to some wonderful, beautiful fall-time wedding here in New England. Up in New Hampshire and the leaves are just at their peak and it's wonderful and it's outdoor and the air is just crisp enough and it's a beautiful occasion and the bride and the groom stand there in front of everyone and they repeat wedding vows that sound something like this. I promise to love you from the bottom of my heart. I will spend myself for your happiness. 
I will pursue your best interest. I will be completely devoted to you as long as I'm guaranteed to get something really good out of it for myself. The most exciting thing happening at that wedding would be all the wagers at all the tables at the reception wondering how many months will they last. And you'd look at that and you'd say, I don't know what it is, but it's not love. It might be pragmatic. It might be utilitarian. But love it is not. Folks, love is what God is after with his people. That is his priority. That God's people should be devoted to him above all else. It was the reason that Jesus told that rich young ruler that he had to take all of his possessions and sell them and give to the poor. Why? Not because money was inherently evil. But because that young man had made his money his God. Because he loved to live for what he could get. It's why the Lord told his people through Haggai to stop being so busy with all of their home improvements. It's why he told them to sacrifice their comfort and their labor for his pleasure and his glory. Not because the God of heaven and earth needs a temple made with human hands in which to dwell. You remember Solomon's prayer. Lord, you don't need this. Even as they built it, he says, you don't need this. We've given it to you anyway. Oh, the Lord doesn't need a temple made with human hands, but the God of heaven and earth desires the hearts of his people. That is his priority. His priority is that we should love the Lord our God with all our mind and all of our heart and all our soul and all our strength. And we could add to that all of our possessions and all our hopes and our pursuits and all our satisfactions. God wants us to love him with a love that produces practical obedience. Real-time obedience. Love that hears his word and trembles and turns in repentance. He wants us to love him with love that has faith that reaches beyond the immediate payout to take hold of his eternal promises. Side note. When we love God and we pursue him in that way, we find that something happens that we never expected. We find satisfaction. Remember Psalm 63. David is out there on the run somewhere. He says, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods when I remember you upon my bed, when I meditate upon you on the watches of the night. He says God himself is far more satisfying than all the things we give ourselves to. And when we love him with the kind of love that he's giving us here, we find that we're satisfied. Back to Haggai, because God isn't holding that out for us. He's simply saying, I want you to be devoted to me. I want you to love me with a love that is true. Quite frankly, I want you to love me with a love that mirrors my love for you. Did you ever stop to think about what God gets out of all of his sacrifice on our behalf? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us very plainly, one will not normally die even for a righteous man. Perhaps maybe for a righteous one someone will, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all the cynics and all the pragmatists reading Romans might say, what on earth for? Why would he do that? What does he get out of the deal? Christ came and he lived and he died and he gave himself to bring salvation to sinners who couldn't save themselves. 
Why didn't he just come and pursue his own happiness? Why didn't he turn those stones into bread? Why didn't he throw himself off the top of the temple and let everybody see it happening? Why didn't he live in a way that secured his own comforts, his own satisfaction? Why would he come and suffer the cross and the grave? What was his motivation? Why would he do it? And in fact, if you could have asked him, he would have told you. In fact, he did tell us. What was Jesus' priority? In all of his work, it was the same as the priority that God's prophet Haggai was giving to God's people. John chapter 17, verse 1, in the night that Jesus was betrayed after Judas had already left, when he's there with his disciples in the upper room and he's been teaching them and he turns to prayer, verse 1 tells us that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That was his priority. Not comfort or or satisfaction or just kicking the can down the road just a little bit further. He came as one who delighted to do the will of God. He came as one who, who loved to give himself to pursue God's glory. And so God speaks to his people in Haggai. He says, go up and do the thing I'm calling to you to do. And I will get pleasure in the work that you're doing. And I will receive the glory for the work that's being done. That's God's priority. And when he confronts our complacency, it's so that he would reorder our priorities so that we would be aligned with what he wants for us, for his glory. And so we learn in Haggai that our God is the God who confronts our complacency. He's the God who reorders our priorities. And though you normally shouldn't believe a preacher when he says so, finally and much more succinctly, he is also the God who stirs us up for service. Now in what's left of Haggai chapter 1, we find a warning of the Lord followed by the work of the Lord. Verses 9 to 11 are the warning. Uh, Technically, in, in, uh, in biblical critical language, it's a curse. God in those verses, 9 to 11, takes ownership of what's happening among his people. What's going on with these economic difficulties that seem to be tightening their grip around the necks of his people in Jerusalem? In fact, he tells them, not only is he in charge of these things, but things are about to get worse if they remain unmoved in their disobedience. Verse 11, he says he has called for a drought. That means it's on deck. It's waiting. It's ready to be unleashed if it should be needed. Now, the important thing to know about this warning is that this is exactly the kind of thing that God's people had heard from him before. They'd heard it before in the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Old Testament. It was there in Leviticus. It was there in Deuteronomy where God spelled out the stipulations of keeping his covenant when they came into the Promised Land. Verses 10 and 11 seem to be uh, specifically alluding to those things, almost quoting those sections in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where God is telling them the curses that we brought against them to wake them up to the seriousness of what's happening. So the people have heard this before in Moses. But more than from Moses, these are the kinds of things that God's people had heard already from the prophets. You know, those other prophets. Those prophets that because of the way things happen in Israel, we are now forced to call the pre-exilic prophets because there is a split in the middle. Those prophets who stood centuries before Haggai, 
those prophets who warned the people that unless they turned from their sin, unless they trusted in the Lord, he would send them all the troubles that he warned them about through Moses, drought and famine and disease and humiliation. And most of all, he warned the pre-exilic people about the curse of the exile. Isaiah warned them about it. He talked about the vineyard of the Lord, the pleasant planting of God, the people of Judah who would be ruined and sent away and left to the wilderness. Jeremiah warned about it. He spoke of the remnant of Israel who would be gleaned as a grapevine, picked off the land one by one. And there were other prophets. We heard Habakkuk this morning. There were other prophets, too numerous to mention. For hundreds of years, they warned the people of God about the dangers of disobedience. And the thing is that no one listened ever. And the warning became a reality. And that means that now, through the ministry of Haggai, in verses 12 to 15, we find something that was missing through all those years of prophetic ministry before Haggai. What we find is revival. Take a look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. You can read any modern book on pastoral ministry. Any one of them. Just pick from any of the ones on my bookshelf. You can borrow them, I promise. You can read any modern book on pastoral ministry, and they will almost without fail tell you that one of the potential dangers of the pastorate is the prospect of a very long and very faithful ministry with very little outward visible fruit. No check marks on calendars, no, no searing memories to... Uh, to pinpoint when did God show up and when did that wonderful thing happen in the life of the congregation that was so earth-shattering. And if that is the experience of some ministers, it is not the experience of Haggai. The Lord sent his word through the prophet and the people responded. They shook off their excuses. They got rid of their complacency. They stepped forward in godly obedience. They put their hands to the work of the Lord because they feared him and they believed him and they loved him enough to make his priorities their own. Why? Was it because Haggai was a really wonderful and engaging preacher? He might have been. Perhaps. It could have been part of it, right? Was it because the people after the exile were much smarter than the people before the exile? I doubt it. Was it because the people now living in Jerusalem had less sin in their heart than the people who had been in Jerusalem 200 years before them? Certainly not. Now the key to the change comes in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked. 
We've heard that before, haven't we? In the heart of a pagan king, 600 miles from Jerusalem. We read it already. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. What does it tell us? It tells us that the Lord is capable of fulfilling his purposes even in the most unlikely of people. It tells us that the Lord is able to overcome our complacency and our excuses. It tells us that he's able to quicken our souls to faith and obedience, that he's able to make us people who tremble at his word and take him at his promises. It means that the Lord is able to do in your soul that which you are not able to do for yourself. What is the obedience that God is calling you to today? What is the the sacrificial love that he's calling for you to give to him? What is the spiritual contentment that you have been unable to find in all the things of this earth that are designed with an intended obsolescence merely to evaporate? Come to the Lord who's able to give you fullness. Come to the Lord who can satisfy your soul. Come to the Lord who can stir you up to service for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would stir your people today. Even as we come to your table, remind us of your love for us and help us because you have loved us first to love you also. Help us to love you with real obedience, putting faith into action. But help us to rejoice, O Lord, that you have loved us before we were ever lovely. And in fact, your love for us in Christ Jesus has made us beloved in him. Help us to know you and trust you. Help us to walk with you and obey you and fear you, we pray in Jesus' name.